Hi, I'm Drew Beebe, the host of a new podcast from CNN called Great Big Story. It's a show about the curious side of the human experience. And I know that sounds like a lofty idea, but hear me out. Over the course of this show, we'll talk to some of the most interesting people you've ever met, from brilliant code breakers to a couple building their own artificial island. If you're itching for a good story and you're curious like I am, well, I think you might like this show. Give us a listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And good evening on the day when uh, the southern and western United States is breaking single-day records for new coronavirus cases. Not for the first time this week, a day after the U.S. recorded its third highest single-day case total overall, and a day where a new influential model said if people would wear masks, the death toll would be significantly reduced. You might hope the president of the United States facing cameras during a news conference in the Rose Garden at the White House would have something to say about it all, perhaps acknowledging that large indoor rallies aren't wise or that flouting and subverting your own government's guidelines at these rallies about social distancing and wearing masks is also a detriment to the public health. But he did not. Instead, the president left the Rose Garden having made only one comment about the virus, a vague reality show-like tease of a surprise to come. As far as the uh, joining with us on the vaccines and therapeutics, by the way, because the therapeutics to me, if you gave me a choice right now, probably therapeutically, maybe I'd, I'd like that even better. But we're working very well on both. I think we're coming up with some great answers. I think you're going to have a big surprise, a beautiful surprise, sooner than anybody would think. A beautiful surprise. Don't touch that dial. Don't lose more of your faith in me. He's still got tricks up his sleeve. So he says. Erica Hill joins us with more. Erica. Hi, Anderson. Good evening. It's interesting the president is not wearing a mask because more and more what we're seeing across the country is those masks are being mandated, if not at the state level, then certainly at the local level, as concern grows with cases and hospitalizations surging. California, the first state to issue a stay-at-home order, shattering a daily high set only two days ago, adding more than 7,000 new cases on Tuesday. It is our behaviors that are leading to these numbers, and we are putting people's lives at risk. COVID-related hospitalizations and ICU admissions also at an all-time high. The numbers in Arizona, Florida, and Texas also surging. It's not just the increase in the number of cases, it's the, the slope, the the way it's accelerating, it's almost vertical. One South Florida health system seeing a more than 100% increase in the number of COVID-19 patients in the last two weeks. We're not where we need to be. If you don't like wearing a mask, you're not going to like wearing a ventilator. As of Tuesday, just 12% of Arizona's ICU beds were available. We're going to go into search capacity mode probably by 4th of July. So that so the most urgent thing, I think, is to get the hospital systems ready. Nationwide, more than half of U.S. states reporting an increase in new cases over the past week. New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, where cases are trending down, want to keep it that way. People coming in from states that have a high infection rate must quarantine for 14 days. As of Wednesday night, eight states subject to the new order, which comes with hefty fines in New York State starting at $2,000 and it's time for personal responsibility. The New York City Marathon, which attracts more than 50,000 runners and nearly a million spectators every fall, canceled over coronavirus fears. Major League Baseball, however, will take the field this summer, 60 games starting in late July. Coinciding with that news, more positive cases among the Phillies and reports of infection for the Rockies, too. 
And, and where do states stand on, on the mandatory use of masks? So, so more are adding those mandates. North Carolina today, Governor Roy Cooper announcing one for his state. And, you know, we keep going back to Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis was asked again today about a mandate for his state, as we're seeing not only cities but counties in southern Florida put them into place. He said he's encouraging people to wear those masks. He doesn't think, though, that enforcement would be an effective use of resources, so he has no plans for a statewide mandate. At meantime, we're hearing again from Dr. Fauci, who said very clearly today, just look at the data when it comes to masks. He he said this should not be a political issue. It is clearly a public health issue. And for people who are looking at it through the political lens, he said it's time to get past it, Anderson. All right. Erica Hill, thanks very much. More now on that new modeling that suggests overall deaths may be lower than previously forecast if safeguards like masks and social distancing are kept in place. Joining me is the director of the Institute that publishes the study, Dr. Chris Murray of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, also CNN Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So, Dr. Murray, you chose to show three different scenarios this time. When you compare the current prediction scenario to the universal mask scenario, which assumes at least 95% of people in the U.S. start wearing masks, which we're far off from, the predictions show that just by that simple act, we could save 33,000 lives by October 1st. I mean, it really is all down to mass? Yeah, it's an incredibly simple, cheap, and now turning out to be effective intervention, both for individuals, but also for communities. And that's why we were pretty amazed at how big the effect is for the country. So absolutely, there's, there's no reason that every state shouldn't do what other states are starting to do, which is mandate mask use. Sanjay, I mean, it's incredible. You know, every time you think about, oh, should I put a mask on or not, 33,000 people's lives would be saved by October. That's stunning. Sorry, we had problems with, uh, with Sanjay's mic. Uh, we'll continue with Dr. Murray. D Dr. Murray, from a medical I mean, standpoint, can we continue to reopen businesses and keep people safe as long as people are or wearing masks, even in hotspot areas? Well, I think it's going to be a balance, uh, Anderson, which is in places where transmission is really taking off, uh, we may need to do more than just masks. But for pretty much every state that we've looked at, if we can get people to wear masks, we can not only save lives, but I sort of think of it as we can also save the economy because we can mm. keep business going if we can convince people that this is the best strategy we have at hand. Yeah, yeah, Sanjay, I mean, that's what's so, it seems harmful about what the administration is doing. On the one hand, pushing for reopening, and at the same time, not pushing uh, with equal force to remind people that, okay, wear masks when you're out, social distance when you're out and going to businesses. Yeah, they're, they're not advocating for the things that would keep us from going back into to shutdown mode again. So that's that's the that is an irony, you know. And and I and I will point out there are countries around the world, including South Korea, which never really went into a shutdown mode, but because of testing and because of masks, um, they've had tremendous success. I mean, they've had fewer than 300 people who who have died here. You know, one one thing that sort of sort of strikes me here, and I'm and I'm curious because we've talked to Dr. Murray so many times over the last few months, is that still though. 146,000 people you say would still die even if 95% of people are wearing masks, right? Is that, is that true? I mean, is that, does that make the argument that we still need to go into some sort of shutdown or stay-at-home mode? 
Well, remember that, you know, 121,000 of those deaths have already occurred. So, yes, there's yeah. still going to be 25,000 people that may uh, will likely die between now and October. But remember, that we're in this for the long haul because we know that there'll be more in the fall. And so I also think we have to temper the strategies with that longer term view. So I think our best strategy right now, outside of the big hotspots, is really to focus on mask use. And then in some of the hotspots, yes, we may need to scale back on, on some of the, or reimpose some of the mandates. Is that, because, uh, Dr. Murray, you're saying kind of, we need to focus on masks now. Is that because you're sensing and you're seeing that people are just fed up of being inside and all the social distancing and can't maintain that? I mean, obviously from a medical standpoint, if everyone was in lockdown, that would be better from a medical standpoint, but obviously from an economic one, it's not. And since we're in it for the long term, are you essentially saying, you know, give people kind of this breathing space right now while the weather's warm? Well, numbers are, are somewhat down because of some warmer weather, uh, because come the fall, winter, it's going to wallop again. Exactly. I think we're going to see kids going back to school in September, at least in some places. You know, the, the colder weather coming in, uh, we're going to see, you know, increases coming pretty much all over the country. And we can manage most of the harm, not all, uh, through masks over the summer. So exactly. I, I do think we need to take the long view and, and think about how we're going to get through as a country, you know, right through to basically a year mm -hmm. from now. Sanjay, it is, I mean, the, I, just kind of hearing Dr. Murray saying a year from now, just thinking about this as it's going to go on for another year. Uh, I mean, I, just hearing that, I kind of have to want to pause and just uh, wrap my mind around that because it's sort of, I mean, it's just an <laughs> agonizing thought for, you know, for everybody. No, I, I know. I, I feel I feel the same way. I mean, you know, you, you do again have have these countries uh, around the world where where you you've um, have. It's definitely not the same as it was, but they have a sense of normalcy that I think you know where things are functioning. Uh, and and I think as you've interviewed the the person who wrote this the dance with the virus, you, we we learn how to sort of live with it in different ways. But I you know I'm really struck by the idea that these simple what they call NPIs non pharmaceutical interventions can have such an impact. We we assumed we guessed, uh, hypothesized that they would, but now there's there, there's good data you know around this. So yeah, it's it's going to be a while still, but there's ways to get through it in ways that are that are a lot less painful than they are right now. And Dr. Murray, I, I know this is uh, probably an obvious point, but I, I think it's an important one just to, to emphasize. It didn't have to be like this. We didn't, ha I just want to be clear, if, um, right. and correct me if I'm wrong, from a scientific standpoint, we didn't have to be the number one country with COVID cases and the highest fatality rate. We didn't have to be in this position that we are in right now where Europe is talking about banning Americans from coming to the European Union because we are handling this so poorly. Um, I mean, we could have been a South Korea or a Taiwan or any of the other countries or uh, Iceland, which has dealt with this very, very well. And I mean, is that correct, that there's nothing inherent about what happened here, that this was inevitable? It's simply how we have dealt with this, with the testing, the contact tracing, the social distancing. We just haven't done it well enough. Yeah, we could be New Zealand. We could be in stadiums with, you know, 40,000 people watching professional sports. Uh, 
it's all about how early you act and uh, act in a concerted way before we get large-scale transmission in the community. There was absolutely no reason this had to happen the way it did. But if we set the clock back, we would have had to have acted you know, pretty promptly, had the tests in place, uh, had the containment strategy in place you know, back in January uh, and certainly in February. Yeah, and February, as we know, was you know, basically a lost month. Uh, Dr. Chris Murray, uh, thank you very much. Sanjay, thank you as well. I'm going to see you tomorrow. Uh, Sanjay's going to join us uh, once again. Uh, Sanjay and I will be doing the Coronavirus Town Hall, Facts and Fears. Joining us will be our special guest, Bill Gates. Always a fascinating discussion with Bill Gates. Um, we'll, uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Again, that's tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern here on CNN. Just ahead, we'll examine why crowded bars and restaurants in Texas may be behind the staggering number of new coronavirus cases there, why experts are concerned whether they have enough ICU beds, and later, why Attorney General William Barr ousted top prosecutor Jeffrey Berman and the damning testimony that paints Barr's Justice Department as a politicized arm of the White House. Congressman Adam Schiff, who led the impeachment investigation, joins us tonight. Symptoms of overactive bladder, or OAB, may be bothersome. As many as 46 million Americans, 40 years of age or older, have reported symptoms of OAB. I got to the point where I was constantly having to plan my outings around being able to go to the bathroom. It felt like my bladder was calling the shots. Many people like her decided enough was enough. It was time to talk to a doctor. We spoke to a few of them to hear their stories in their own words. Listen in at oabmed.com and hear how they discovered Mirbetric Mirabegron. Mirbetric is a prescription medicine for adults used to treat OAB symptoms of urgency, frequency, and leakage. Do not take if you have a known allergic reaction to Mirbetric or its ingredients. Mirbetric may increase blood pressure. Tell your doctor right away if you have trouble emptying your bladder or have a weak urine stream. Mirbetric may cause serious allergic reactions like swelling of the face, lips, throat, or tongue, or trouble breathing. If experienced, stop taking and tell your doctor right away. Mirbetric may interact with other medicines. Tell your doctor if you are taking thioridazine, melaril, and melaril S, flecainide, tambacore, propafenone, rhythmol, digoxin, linoxin, or solifenacin succinate vesicare. Tell your doctor if you have liver or kidney problems. Common side effects include increased blood pressure, common cold or flu symptoms, sinus irritation, dry mouth, urinary tract infection, bladder inflammation, back or joint pain, constipation, dizziness, and headache. See our ad in Reader's Digest magazine or call 1-855-697-2387. Hear real stories about how Mirbetric can help OAB symptoms at oabmed.com and ask your doctor if it could help you. That's oabmed.com. Tonight, we've been talking about the spike in cases. One of the major hotspots is Texas. There's an unmistakable rise in the number of new cases. You can see here the daily new uh, case count staying under 2,000 per day. That's until around Memorial Day weekend when it spiked. Today, Texas announced 5,551 new cases, another new record in a month of them. It's not just a rise in cases that worries health experts, but the rise in hospital beds, uh, with our next guest concerned that intensive care units in Texas could fill up in the coming weeks. Joining me now is someone you heard from at the top of the program about the rising cases, Dr. Peter Hotez. He's dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas. Dr. Hotez is also working on a potential COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Hotez, thanks for being with us. You're saying this rise in cases is vertical. And if this trajectory keeps going, quote, Houston would be the worst affected city in the U.S., maybe rival what we're seeing now in Brazil. That's pretty startling. Can you just take a, give me a sense of how that might actually happen? Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing now, Anderson, is a, 
what I call an exponential increase. If you've seen what an exponential curve looks like, it looks like it's a bit flat, then it goes up almost uh, vertically. And in fact, that's what seems to be happening right now in Houston, and not only in Houston, but we're seeing a similar acceleration in Dallas, in Austin, in San Antonio. So our big metro areas uh, seem to be uh, rising uh, very quickly. And and some of the models are, you know, on the verge of being apocalyptic. We're seeing the models coming out of University of Pennsylvania. Now it's a model, but the numbers say that we'll have a fourfold increase in the number of daily cases by July 4th in Houston. So right now we're already seeing a steep acceleration. Thousand cases a day. We're talking maybe 4,000 cases a day by July 4th, weekend July 5th. So that is really worrisome. And and as that's as as those numbers rise, we're seeing a commensurate increase in the number of hospitalizations and ICU admissions. And you worry you get to the point where you overwhelm ICUs, and that's when mortality goes up. Right now, we have ICU beds. Do we still have room to go? Uh, our uh, Texas Children's Hospital under uh, Mark Wallace, our CEO, is now opening up the Children's Hospital for adult beds. MD Anderson uh, can open up beds. So we still have more room, but who wants to go there? We need to do something to halt community transmission right now. I, I want to play something that the Texas Governor uh, Abbott said yesterday, warning Texans about the virus. Because the spread is, is so rampant right now, there's never a reason for you to have to leave your home unless you do need to go out. The safest place for you is at your home. So Governor Abbott is urging people to stay at home, but it's not a stay-at-home order. And the fact of the matter is Texas was one of the earliest states to reopen. Uh, do you think his approach back then is why we're seeing this spike now? Well, you know, he, he, you know, he started out uh, pretty strong. We started out here in Texas very strong. We saw what was happening in New York back in March and April. And uh, we uh, implemented a very aggressive social distancing program, and that was extremely successful. So we probably stopped the virus uh, from really taking off because we halted it early, much earlier than New York did. They probably had transmission for five or six weeks, and that's why they had thousands of patients in their intensive care units. We probably had transmission just for uh, uh, maybe two or three weeks, and the consequence of that was we never saw that big surge. So we were doing great, but then, you know, you just had Chris Murray on, and I'd been talking with Chris, and the modelers at University of Washington were saying, look, keep this uh, lockdown and th throughout the month of May, and then you can get to containment mode. That means less than one new case per million residents uh, per day, and then your public health system should be able to handle it, very much like we're seeing in New Zealand. But we didn't go there. We, we opened it up at the end of uh, April. And, uh, and then after Memorial Day, the cases started to rise. But we didn't do some other things. We didn't put in place a sufficient uh, level of public health infrastructure. We didn't put in all the belts and suspenders that we needed to in terms of uh, uh, contact, the level of contact tracing, diagnostic testing. We never put in an, an app-based system for looking at local areas of rise of cases of fever. Uh, so and Houston isn't, and Texas isn't doing... Well, we call the, syndromic testing, so... They're not doing the, con the contact tracing that, you, that you'd hope they would be. It's in place, but not at, the, not at the level and scope that, for instance, we're seeing in New York and elsewhere. So there were, there were some good pieces in place, but not at, not yeah. at substantial level that we needed. And now we're seeing the consequences of that, of all those things, this very uh, steep rise. We also didn't probably have a level of 
public health communication because although I think the governor is well intentioned, you know, doing a quarter, then 50%, and not just the governor, but, you know, the county executives and the mayors, I don't think the people really heard that because we're driving around Houston, people were, didn't have masks on, uh, they, were, they were piling into bars and, and et cetera. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Peter Hotez, I uh, appreciate being with us. I'm sorry it's with this message, but I appreciate it. Up next, Republicans defending and generally downplaying President Trump's remarks about Kung flu. As we mentioned at the top of the program, President Trump whiffed on mentioning the spike in coronavirus cases, uh, case numbers at his news conference with the Polish president today. One topic he did talk about at length was statues. It's clearly an issue he's latching onto because he believes it'll push the right buttons to keep his base simmering at a nice steady boil. He's now adding Jesus Christ to the list of statues he claims he's determined to defend. Caitlin Collins joins us now at the White House. So what did he have to say, Caitlin? Yeah, Anderson, I don't think there have any, been any widespread calls to bring down statues of Jesus Christ. I can really only think of one person that has suggested that that's a prominent figure. But the president addressed it today in the Rose Garden as he was standing next to the Polish leader there. He was talking about this and saying that he believes Democrats don't even care, that the people who are tearing down these monuments don't even know why they're tearing them down. I think many of the people that are knocking down these statues don't even have any idea what the statue is, what it means, who it is when they knock down Grant, when they want to knock down Grant. But when they look at certain, now they're looking at Jesus Christ. They're looking at George Washington. They're looking at Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Not as long as I'm here. Anderson, what's so interesting about that is this evolved from where the president was initially saying we shouldn't rename military bases named after Confederate leaders, generals, uh, military members. And now the president is changing it to basically saying that if you start to take down those kinds of monuments and those kinds of statues, then you're going to have to take down ones of Thomas Jefferson and Jesus Christ. You know, he didn't mention those Confederate leaders today while he was in the Rose Garden, but that's the equivalency that the White House has been making. Right. I mean, it's an argument that's often made when, when it's discussed uh, uh, about this whole idea. And, I mean, it's clearly the president has been casting around for things that he believes will, you know, ignite the base. Uh, you know, for he, it was, as you said, it was the bases named after Confederate generals. That didn't really seem to take off. So now uh, I guess Jesus Christ is, is, you know, a button he thinks he will push and that that will have the most the most resonance. He's talking about an executive order. What, what does that even mean? We really have no details on that. He said today that that's something he thinks he's going to sign by the end of the week. Basically, he wants to be able to punish people who are trying to tear down statues like how you saw happening in front of the White House the other night, trying to take down Andrew Jackson, of course, a personal favorite of the president's statue. But there's already an act that was enacted, a law that was enacted in 2003 that does punish people who try to do that. So it's not really clear what the president would be doing that's different here. He even kind of hinted at that today, saying it would only really reinforce it. So it seems to be more of a messaging tactic. And like you said, it comes as the president is trying to stoke certain culture wars because he's looking at major polls that show he's 14 points down to Biden and his political advisors say it's something he's obviously taking note of. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin Collins, thanks very much. President Trump's comments about the Kung flu virus also still attracting attention. Kellyanne Conway had once denounced the term, of course, but now the president has said it out loud twice this week. Magically, she appears to have rethought her answer. How do you know the way people 
How do you know that people aren't anticipating that or are not connecting that? You don't know that. And while the president, excuse me, while the president is saying it, he, while the president is saying it, he's also saying this virus came from China. China is responsible. He said it's called many different things. It's called the Wuhan virus, the Chinese virus, and then he used another term. He another used. You can ask him. How's that? You should, you should have come forward 100 days ago when you had the chance. You, you lost your opportunity. You lacked the courage to tell everybody who said that to you. Kellyanne Conway, profile in courage. Two Republican senators also refused to criticize the phrase today. Ron Johnson of Wisconsin said he wouldn't lose any sleep over it and when asked if it was racist to say, responded, quote, we are just way too sensitive about these things, says the white guy. Lindsey Graham said people don't care what he calls the flu, also a white guy. And when that, when pushed on whether he thought it was racially tinged, said, quote, was the Spanish flu racially tinged? The funny thing is, Lindsay, it actually was. Spanish flu, you may not know this, Mr. Graham, Senator Graham, didn't originate from Spain, got labeled that, and Spain suffered because of it. And we still think it originated in Spain because during World War I, many newspapers were censored. Wartime censors minimized reports of the illness, the illness in their countries because they didn't want to demoralize people during the war effort. The Spanish press didn't censor reporting, so it seemed like Spain was where the flu began because there were actually reports about it in Spain because the reporters weren't censored. Medical historians are still unsure exactly where it originated from. So yeah, Lindsey Graham, it actually did become racially tinged. Joining me now is Bakari Sellers, a former Democratic South Carolina House member. He recently released his memoir, My Vanishing Country, which I've just finished and is a really good book. Also joining us is Andrew Yang, a former Democratic presidential candidate. Both are CNN political commentators. Uh, Andrew, I mean, we just saw Kellyanne Conway not only defending this term, which she once, uh, you know, said was, was wrong to use, then turning around on an Asian American CBS News reporter, basically blaming her for not revealing who she said used the term Kung Flu in the White House in the first place. Uh, I mean, it's hard. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't even know what the question is in this. But um, why is it so hard? I guess, why is it so hard around, around the, for people around the president to just, you know, say something is offensive or wrong? And, and I mean, especially when they have already said it's wrong, but then when the president uses it, you know, she contorts herself into, you know, uh, like a pretzel trying to come up with explanations. Well, this is the bind that Trump supporters find themselves in and that they have to defend something that, that they uh, themselves criticized a number of days or weeks ago. And we all can see exactly what's happening, Anderson, where uh, using a term like this is just Trump's attention to distract attention from the fact that the administration has completely botched and mishandled the coronavirus pandemic. The doctor you just had on is talking about how we're seeing cases surge in 23 states plus around the country. And so this is his, in my opinion, very ineffective attempt to turn the conversation in a different direction. Um, and it puts people like Kellyanne in this impossible position where they have to say something that's the exact opposite of what they were quoted directly on camera saying just a number of weeks ago. And Bakari, I mean, it's not just Kelly and Conway. You had Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, who's, uh, you know, married to a, a woman who's Asian-American. He was asked the other day how he personally feels about the president's use of Kung Flu. And he basically said silent. He said, well, you'll have to ask, you know, but maybe you should ask that to his wife. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that's depressing as a husband. I can tell you my wife expects me to stand up for her more than that. 
But the president is racist, and racists do racist things. I mean, I, I actually want to look at the broader sense of, of the phrase and the environment in which he said it, which ties into something earlier in this segment. The president said Kung Flu in the middle of a church in Arizona and amongst evangelicals who waited on him with bated breath to say it, and then they cheered. And so, you know, I don't have a level of expectation for Donald Trump. I thought Donald Trump was racist since he rode down the escalator and stated uh, that, that Mexicans are sending us their rapists. In fact, I'll go back further than that. I thought Donald Trump was racist since he talked about the Central Park Five. In fact, I'll go back further than that. I thought Donald Trump was racist since he, he got in trouble from the Department of, of Labor for uh, marking, um, marking housing applications with the little letter C for color. So this is a history. This is a pattern. I don't have any level of expectation uh, for Donald Trump when it comes to the issue of race. But I mean, th there are people in this country who will turn a blind eye to his blatant racism. That's what my problem is. I mean, in, in that church of evangelicals, just to tie it in a bit, I mean, imagine if they found out that Jesus was actually a brown Middle Eastern refugee. I mean, their heads would probably explode. So he's playing into these culture wars. It's not winning. It's only going to get worse between now and November. And I wish people got more friends in this world. Right now, we're living in a world where we don't have empathy. And in that way, you don't know if this is racist or not, maybe. But you should talk to one of your friends who's of Asian American descent. You should actually have friends in this world who can tell you and call this BS out for what it is. Andrew, I mean, the, clearly the president's been, as you said, you know, kind of casting around for, for things that will, will, you know, ignite the base, keep everybody riled up, keep media focused on, on this and distracted. Do you think this stuff works? I mean, still, you know, I, mean, I remember in the, I think, 80s when I was, you know, in high school and college, uh, I remember a lot of there was, you know, people would use burning the American flag as the touchstone that would get everybody very upset, and, you know, for understandable reasons, but nevertheless protected uh, protected speech, according to the court. Uh, does it, do you think it still has the same power? Because it seems like that is the Trump playbook right now. I think it's losing steam as we speak, Anderson, and you can see it in the polls. I mean, this is like the desperate thrashing around of a losing candidate. He shows up to a rally that has a very small fraction of the people that they're projecting, and he he's somewhat desperate, in my opinion. He can see the polls. He's losing to Joe in all of the crucial swing states. Uh, I think that this is a losing path for him. He's just degrading himself in the office of the, the president further uh, by grasping at straws that aren't actually keeping him afloat. Uh, I wish he could figure out a path that did not involve uh, racist comments that end up throwing millions of Americans um, you know, under a rhetorical bus. Uh, but here it is, and hopefully we can get him out of there and call an end to this presidency in four and a half short months. Bakari, do you think it still works? Because, I mean, I, I'm not sure I believe, you know, polls, uh, especially yeah. right now, but, uh, you know, national polls, even state polls. But, but do you think this works? I mean, it worked in 2016. I mean, let, let's, let's be honest. I mean, I, you know, I, I love both you and Andrew with all my heart, but... I mean, in 2016, we, we saw an election where we knew Donald Trump was racist going into the election, right? And we had the most qualified woman in the history of politics run for office, and people still chose the racist over her. I mean, so this isn't new. Um, and and w what we're hoping for, though, what we're hoping for is something this country has not bared out. We're hoping that this country will finally turn the page. And yes, we have NASCAR. Yes, we have Taylor Swift. Yes, we have all of these things that are happening during this moment which show us that this moment may be different, 
but we still have to run through the tape to Andrew's point. We have four and a half months. And, and this, if we do not do something, if we're not participatory in this democracy, then Donald Trump will get elected because that racism has won four. Hmm. Uh, Bakari Sellers, Andrew Yang, appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Up next, just days after Attorney General Bill Barr forced the removal of a top federal prosecutor, another federal prosecutor testifies on Capitol Hill and says there's political pressure at the Justice Department from the highest levels. We'll talk about all of it with Democratic House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff next. Justice is not blind to Bill Barr's Justice Department if the defendant is a friend of President Trump's. That was the stunning message today from a current federal prosecutor in a sworn testimony to the House Judiciary Committee. Aaron Zielinski is one of four federal prosecutors who quit the Roger Stone case. He told the committee today he quit when the Justice Department's sentencing recommendation was watered down due to political pressure from the, quote, highest levels. Stone, you may recall, is a longtime friend and political advisor of President Trump, who was convicted last fall of seven charges, including lying and witness tampering in a congressional investigation. Zielinski didn't hold back today. Here's more of what he told the committee when he testified remotely. What I saw that Roger Stone was being treated differently from every other defendant. He received breaks that are, in my experience, unheard of, and all the more so for a defendant in his circumstances, a defendant who lied to Congress, who remained unrepentant, and who made threats against a judge and a witness in his case. And what I heard repeatedly was that this leniency was happening because of Stone's relationship to the president. Joining me now is California Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Chairman Schiff, your, your colleague, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, once labeled Attorney General Barr a henchman for the president. I wonder from today's testimony if you'd agree with that statement. I certainly would. Uh, you know, I've always said that he's the second most dangerous man in the country. And what he's done to that department uh, that I served with uh, for almost six years uh, is so uh, reprehensible and, and dangerous to the rule of law because there are now two standards of justice. There's one for friends of the president and there's one for everyone else. If you're a friend of the president, you get a reduced sentencing recommendation or in the case of Mike Flynn, your whole case gets to be made uh, to go away. On the other hand, ordinary Americans not connected to the president, uh, they don't get any such breaks. Uh, and what's more, Bill Barr threatens to use the power of the Justice Department to go after the president's enemies. Uh, so this is a very precarious situation for the rule of law in this country. We look more and more like an emerging democracy than we do uh, the strongest democracy in the globe. Uh, and a lot of that has come as a result of Bill Barr's uh, corrupt handling of that department. Yeah, an emerging democracy or a fading democracy, I guess. I mean, if you look at Bill Barr's actions going all the way back to when he refused to release the Mueller report just a month into his tenure and instead issued his own four-page summary of it, which was misleading, uh, to the firing of Jeffrey Berman, the U.S. Attorney General in New York. Uh, today's testimony that the DOJ allegedly exerted pressure to go easy on Roger Stone, I mean, it, it is part of a pattern, though, of just protecting the president. And there were reforms put in place after Watergate to stop just this kind of thing. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, from the earliest days of this presidency, uh, Donald Trump has stepped on all these norms of office uh, post-Watergate, where the White House wasn't going to interfere uh, in particular cases, especially those that might implicate the interests of the president. But it wasn't until Bill Barr that he had his Roy Cohn, that he had, uh, as the speaker said, his henchmen in that position to essentially do the president's will. Uh, no matter how craven that would require the, the attorney general to be, 
But that's exactly what we have here. Uh, we have an attorney general uh, who was willing to mislead the country about Mueller's investigation. Uh, indeed, Melissa mislead the country about his own interactions with Mueller. Uh, and now we see a continuation of that by the effort to uh, force out the prosecutor, the independent U.S. attorney from New York. Uh, Barr's dissembling to the country about his resignation. Uh, Barr's dissembling to the U.S. attorney from New Jersey, who apparently he also uh, misrepresented uh, that Berman was voluntarily resigning. So this is an unscrupulous attorney general. Uh, and when that is the top law enforcement officer in the country, uh, it spells real danger to the republic. House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler said today he may, in fact, pursue impeaching Barr. Initially, it said it'd be a waste of time. Do you foresee that? I mean, is, is that a real possibility? Because obviously Republicans control the Senate, would, would most likely stand behind Barr. You know, I will leave it to uh, Chairman Nadler uh, and the Speaker to make a decision uh, of that uh, nature with respect to Mr. Barr. Uh, I do think, though, that it's very important that we expose the full uh, wrongdoing of this administration, both the wrongdoing of the Attorney General as well as the President of the United States, uh, so that uh, as we move forward, the American people know exactly what they have uh, in this administration, which is one that does not value our democratic institutions or the rule of law, uh, and therefore is a danger to every American. Uh, if you think that the President won't go after you uh, just because you're a friend of the President, uh, well, you may be right at the moment, but he will turn on anyone he perceives as a threat. Uh, so there is no safety or security even for the allies of the president. I wish uh, the members of the House and Senate, uh, my colleagues in the GOP, would realize that. They are vulnerable, too. No American is safe when the attorney general uh, is not looking out for the interests of justice, but only looking out for the interests of a president who uh, makes common cause with autocrats and disdains democracy. Borg now set to testify before the House Judiciary Committee in late July. I mean, during his Senate testimony, he wasn't the most forthcoming uh, with answers. Do, I mean, do you think you can actually learn something this time? I think it's important to, to put the questions to the attorney general, uh, whether he answers them or answers them truthfully, to expose his lack of character to the American people. But, Anderson, I think you're right. Probably the more important testimony is the testimony that we heard today and that we will hear from other whistleblowers, uh, and that is people who can expose Bill Barr's wrongdoing rather than just hear Bill Barr deny his own wrongdoing. Uh, so I think some of these other witnesses, they may not be as high profile, but, in fact, they may have even more important things to say. I thought Don Ayers' testimony today, the former deputy attorney general under George Bush, who talked about the systemic threat to the rule of law was among the most important testimony that we've heard. So these, these, all of these witnesses, I think, are going to be crucial. Mm -hmm. Chairman Schiff, I appreciate your time. For a deeper look at what's going on with Bill Barr and the president, join Jake Tapper for a new CNN special report, Trump and the Law After Impeachment, this Sunday night at 10 p.m. Eastern. Still ahead tonight, breaking news in the Ahmaud Arbery case, the young man who was killed when he went for a jog in, in a Georgia town, details in the grand jury's decision on charges. America's getting back to work. In this new economy, your business needs every advantage to succeed. You need to be smart. And smart companies run on the world's number one cloud business system, NetSuite by Oracle. With NetSuite, you'll have visibility and control over every part of your business, your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. It's everything you need, all in one place. Whether you're doing a million in sales or hundreds of millions, NetSuite lets you expertly keep track of every penny. 
It gives you the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Over 20,000 companies trust NetSuite to make it happen. Make yours one of them. Learn more by visiting netsuite.com ac360. From there, you can schedule a tour of NetSuite and get their free guide, Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. It's chock full of the top strategies executives are using as America reopens for business. Get your free guide and product tour now at netsuite.com slash AC360. Let's check in with Chris, see what he's working on for Cuomo Primetime. Chris? How you doing, Coop? Uh, so we have a very interesting situation going on uh, in this country. And by interesting, I mean bad when it comes to the pandemic. Uh, this nonsense that COVID would take the summer off was just that, nonsense. Of course, the president is quiet about it, but that's why you've seen leaders pop up around the country in the form of the heads of states. Uh, and now we're going to put a spotlight on a bunch of them because you have the most populous states, California, Texas, Florida, have these explosions in cases. Why? We're going to get an answer tonight from a governor of one of the states that was an epicenter, but now the cases are down dramatically compared to the rest of the country. The governor of New York, my brother, Andrew Cuomo, uh, is here to discuss why he, the governor of New Jersey and the governor of Connecticut, have gotten their cases down. What did they learn that the others need to do? And why are they banding together to do this new quarantine? Is that the best way to keep numbers down? They didn't like it when it was going to be done to them. Why is it okay now? We'll go through that. And also, we're going to take a look at these new charges uh, in the case in Georgia involving uh, Arbery and how he was chased down there. Malice now ascribed by a grand jury. The implications we'll discuss. Chris, thanks very much. We'll see you in about uh, five minutes from now. Up next, breaking news. Uh, We'll talk about the case that uh, Chris is talking about. Alonda Arbery killed when he went for a jog with a Georgia grand jury has decided when we come back. Grand jury has, killed, has indicted the three men accused of killing Ahmed Arbery, the 25-year-old man who was shot to death when he was out for a jog near Brunswick, Georgia, back in February. His murder and video of the deadly encounter sparked widespread outrage, and Arbery's name is one that the protesters shout as they demand racial equality in America. Soon as Victor Blackwell has details. These three men, they've been indicted. What happens next, Victor? So the arraignment uh, is next, Anderson. Uh, we don't know when that is going to happen. There's a judicial emergency here in Georgia because of uh, coronavirus. But we're told by the district attorney here in uh, Cobb County, who's now in charge of this case, that it took the grand jury just 10 minutes to return that indictment uh, of nine counts. Malice, murder, felony murder, four counts of that. Aggravated assault, two counts there, false imprisonment, and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. Now, those murder charges in Georgia, if they are convicted of those, they will receive a sentence of life in prison, but it could go to life in prison without the possibility of parole or the death penalty. We've not yet learned from the DA if the death penalty will be sought, but the attorneys for these men, for the McMichaels, Gregory and Travis, father and son, say that there should not be a rush to judgment, and we've heard from the attorney for William Roddy, who shot the video that so many people have seen, who says that he was just uh, a witness. Yeah. And has the family responded? Yes. So uh, the family was not at the uh, reading of the uh, or announcement, I should say, of the indictment today. Uh, But the D.A. says that as soon as they received that, they called the family and she said that they were grateful. Uh, There's a statement from Esley Merritt, attorney who represents uh, the family, who says that they're determined to see the men prosecuted 
convicted and appropriately mm. sentenced. Of course, the family has waited a very long yeah. time for this. So many weeks for charges, and now this. And they say justice will come at the end of this trial. They hope yeah. uh, with uh, that sentence. Victor Blackwell. Victor, thank you. The news continues. We want to hand it over to Chris for Cuomo Prime Time.